to just look at heaven. Um, and so we're going to do that today. I've titled this series, Heaven, Better by Far. And, you know, throughout the history of the church, and really even before the church, you go back to the Old Testament, uh, heaven always occupied the hearts and minds of God's people. And as you look at those uh, people, those individuals, and those groups of people, it's always because they, they really held this life, this present life, uh, with a loose hand. They really uh, visualized themselves as simply just passing through uh, this temporary land. And I just want to give you a couple examples. When you go to a, a Hebrews chapter 11, for example, the heroes of the faith, right? They're all Old Testament heroes that are listed there. But it says this in chapter 11, verse 13, about these men and these women. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You see, they, they looked at themselves as passing through, right? I'm just a pilgrim. I'm just traveling through. They didn't desire the country from which they had come. Uh, they desired uh, not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. And a few verses later, in verse 16 of the same chapter, Hebrews, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, the heavenly country is called a better one in that passage. And Paul says a similar thing in Philippians 1. You might remember that he's, he said he's, he's hard you know, pressed between two choices. Uh, the one is to remain here on earth and to continue to minister to people and to bear fruitful ministry. The other is to, to depart and be with Christ. And he says, which is better by far, which is where I've stolen the title, <laughs> right? It's better by far to go and be with Christ. And that was Paul's mindset. You know, he, uh, as wonderful as, as ministry is, as amazing as it is to see the lives of individuals transformed through the power of the gospel, Paul even said heaven is better by far. And then, you know, later in that letter to the Philippians, he reminds them, that church in Philippi, uh, where their citizenship is. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. You see, you're not a citizen of you know, uh, the region of, uh, you know, Macedonia, he's telling them, right? You're a citizen of heaven. You think of the Colossians as well. He wrote to them this in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds um, on things above and not on things on earth. Uh, this is the mindset Paul had. He said the same thing to the Thessalonians. We study this, the men, in chapter 1 or chapter 4, right? He, he talks about the rapture. He says, therefore, we'll always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Think about being with the Lord is what he's saying. And he's constantly, constantly directing the saints toward the thoughts of uh, our life not here on earth, but our life beyond here. Do you know that the Bible speaks about heaven uh, over 500 times? In the book of Revelation, over 50 times, just in that one book. But I think, and it's really sad testimony, but the, the church today, by and large, uh, largely thinks little of heaven and thinks a lot of earth. And, you know, uh, pastors can be to blame as well. Maybe we don't talk about heaven enough. Maybe I don't talk about heaven enough. You know, I look back at the books we studied and I thought, well, you know, I 
Probably the last time we really focused on heaven was when we studied Revelation, you know, and that's like four or five years ago. Um, And most recently, 1 Corinthians 15, right? We did take some time to lift our eyes and to uh, talk about our resurrected uh, bodies, which was a fun study. It was fun to look at that, but that just talked about our bodies. It didn't so much talk about heaven. And so I want to do that over the next three weeks. We're going to take three weeks to do that. What is heaven going to be like? Now, if you go to the books that have been written, <laughs> you, you know, you have a woeful view of, of heaven. Um, mo- you know, so many books have been written, people saying they've gone to heaven, they've seen this person, they've seen that, they've seen Jesus, you know, whatever, and they come back and they tell us what heaven is, is like. Listen, I'm not going to do that. I have read a couple of books on heaven, and they're not by people who went there. All right. There are men who study the word of God to say, this, this is what I get from God's word. This is what heaven must be. And we're going to do the same today. We're going to go to God's word, which is the ultimate authority on heaven. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 21. So if you turn all the way to the end of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 21, it's the second to last chapter of the whole Bible. We're going to do a study over the next few weeks of this chapter. I won't be preaching next week. We'll actually have a guest preacher next week, so there'll be a short break, but then we'll come back and we'll do two more weeks on, on, on heaven. Next week, we will have um, Saul Garamano from Pillar Community Church, our sister church in Swansea. I preached there last Sunday um, and then said, so would you like to return the favor? Come this way. And so uh, they're going to they're gonna do that. But let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Today, we're going to look at the first eight verses, starting in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let's pray. God, We thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for books like this that give us a glimpse of heaven, Lord, that we can truly know what awaits us. I know we won't have all the details. We don't get all the questions that we have answered, but Lord, we have enough. We have enough in your word to make us understand that heaven is better by far. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just be with us today. Would uh, you put our speculation to rest and just guide us into truth that we might truly uh, live in this life with the hope of eternity in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, before we begin this study, I think it's important to make sure everyone knows where we are at this point in redemptive history when we come to Revelation chapter uh, 21. When you read Revelation, by the way, um, it must be read and understood by interpreting it in its normal, uh, literal, chronological sense. I know it is it's prophetic, it's prophecy, um, and so it might be, you know, might struggle because there is symbolism, things like that. But you will run into problems when you super-spiritualize the text. So a literal chronological approach is the best approach, and I think I mentioned to everyone a few weeks ago when we, when we looked at the beginning of this, but the outline uh, for Revelation can be found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Highlight that, write it down. If you understand that, you can really understand the entire book. John, the author, is told to write the things which you have seen and the things which are current and the things which will take place after this. And when you read Revelation, you see that's, that's simply how it's laid out, all right? Simply how it's laid out. Chapter 1, it's what he has seen. He sees a vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ in his glorified state. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age, all letters to the churches, which represent churches even today. There's a sampling of every kind of church that has ever been on the earth throughout all history. It represents today. And then onwards from chapter 4 on the things which will take place after this. So that's a helpful little uh, guide for you. But in chapter 21, notice that John says, I saw. When you read the book of Revelation, you see John saying that repeatedly, I saw, I saw. And that is to help you as the reader to understand that, that, uh, that a chronological progression has taken place. The next thing chronologically has moved on. And it also introduces climatic events. So when you look at Revelation 19, for example, uh, verse 11, when Jesus returns, now I saw heaven opened, right? It's a new event happening, and Jesus is returning. But chronologically, what has happened? Well, at this point, the church has been raptured. The, The world and everybody remaining in the world has gone through what's called the Great Tribulation, which is a period of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth, upon all who live here, all right? And it is uh, apparent as you read Revelation that people will come to faith during that time, so there will be unbelievers and believers existing during this seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. That's already happened at this point. At this point, Revelation 19 has already happened, so Christ has returned to the earth with his bride, with the church, all right? And he has vanquished his enemies, the beast, the Antichrist, right? The false prophet, They have been dealt with. They've been cast into the lake of fire. But Satan, Satan has not been cast into the lake of fire. He has only been chained up. He's chained up, and then Christ sets up his kingdom here on this earth, okay? It's called the the millennial kingdom, all right? He reigns here for 1,000 years on this earth. During that time, you have Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, have been resurrected. They enter this millennial kingdom with Christ, along with all believers throughout all history. We will live here on this earth. Believers who manage to stay alive during the tribulation will enter into this kingdom as well. So you will have people in normal, everyday human bodies, but you also have people in glorified bodies because the resurrected saints are in there. Jesus will reign for a thousand years. He has reigned, and during that time, the earth has repopulated. And Satan is released at the end of the thousand years. And once again, he's up to his old tricks. He goes around deceiving the nations. The nations once again come up against Christ, and he defeats them all 
for good this time, Satan and his demons are all cast into the lake of fire. That's all happened at this point as well. Sinners uh, of all ages have been resurrected. Those who, who have died have been resurrected to the great white throne judgment. They're judged for their sins, and they are sentenced as well to eternity in the lake of fire. That's called the great white throne judgment. That has happened. And the final bit that has happened, and it happens right at the end here, is that this present universe uh, is no more. In fact, at the great white throne judgment in chapter 20, verse 11, it says, heaven and earth fled away. Okay? So you have to understand that all that has happened at this point when we come to Revelation 21. And, and I, we skipped a, a bunch of stuff, right? You're like, why? Right? That's a whole other study. We're just looking at heaven. And when I say heaven, we're looking at now the eternal state. What will be your final resting place? Five features of heaven come to us um, that John gives us. And the first one is this, the five features of heaven. The first one is its appearance, okay? Now look at what it says in verse 1. Now I saw, this is John speaking, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So, so, so here we have the ultimate reason for, for us to really not hold on to the things of this earth because they pass away, right? The old heaven, the old earth pass away. Now, a lot of people are trying to figure out what does that mean to pass away? Revelation 20 said, earth, heaven and earth fled away. John says here that they passed away. Let me show you another passage. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. If you're in Revelation, you're just going to make a short left-hand turn a couple of books, and you come to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to take you to verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Right before 1 John. You found 1 John, you just go the next page. It's probably on the same page there. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which, and here it is, the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, this is a very helpful verse. It gives us some more description. It talks about the elements burning up in, in heat. And so a lot of people think that the heaven and earth are just completely obliterated, right? They're just completely destroyed. But when you look at this and you look at that particularly, that word burned up, the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, actually, you might even have a translation before you, say laid bare or even found. And we know that in Scripture that fire is used to refine, is to reveal. You go back to what we studied in 1 Corinthians about, you know, some of us are, are storing up works that are made of precious metals. And when the fire consumes, they'll still be there. But some are just working with wood, hay, and straw, and there won't be anything left. And here in this passage, Peter has just talked about the first destruction that came upon the earth. What was that? The flood. Now, can I just ask you something? Did that destroy the earth? Did the earth cease, cease to exist? No. It, did it reshape it? Oh, yeah. Does it look different? Oh, yeah. All right. You look at our earth and it's mostly water. That is not the way it was created, quite differently. But yet, in the beginning of that passage, Peter describes the world 
uh, that existed perished, being flooded with water. And so it certainly was judged. It certainly was a cataclysmic event, but it didn't completely destroy the earth, but it did reshape it. And so I think what we're looking at here, when we look at Revelation, we talk about the first heaven and the first earth passing away. We're really looking at a, a renewing. In fact, the word new is kainos, and it means recently made or of a new kind. And it means new in quality. It means, in terms of quality, superior in character. This will be a better heavens, a better earth. That's what we're looking at. And this phrase, the new heavens, is actually coming from two Old Testament passages, both found in Isaiah. So I put them both on the same screen for you. Isaiah 65, 17 and Isaiah 66, 22. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And so the idea of new heavens and new earth is an Old Testament concept. comes to us here in the new. And so I believe this is going to be a newly fashioned, superior heavens and earth. Uh, And the one key feature that probably stood out to most of you as you read this first verse is also there was no more sea. (laughs) And and for some of you, that was the selling point, and you're ready like, I'm done. I don't want heaven, right? There's no more sea. In fact, just to test that theory, um, I was studying in my office, and I just stepped out. She's already shaking her head. I stepped out to the kitchen because I knew my wife was in there, and I said, honey, the new heavens and the new earth has no more sea. I just said it to her just to look at her response. And she just looked at me for a minute like, what are you talking about? And then went, made the face like this. She goes, well, that's so sad. <laughs> that's the best part of our world. And probably a lot of you think of that, right? You think, how can there be no more sea? You love the beach and you love sand getting into every crevice of your body, I know. I th- a couple of things I think will be helpful. First of all, <clears throat> um, we don't want to get this confused with many passages you read in the Old Testament that talk about a sea being present with Christ reigning, because many of those talk about the millennial reign of Christ. Remember I said Christ will rule this earth for a thousand years, and yet many people confuse them. We read about Ezekiel, in Ezekiel, a new, a new millennial temple. We read about healing waters that will flow uh, to the sea. That is speaking about the millennial reign here on earth. Zechariah uh, speaks about the same thing in chapter 14, about waters flowing to the eastern and western seas. That can't be speaking about the eternal state because they're is no sea. But why no more sea? Well, here's the thing. We, we can't read this with our, our 21st century minds, okay? We got to kind of get rid of that because uh, we think of beach and sandcastles and surfboarding and, you know, sailing and snorkeling and all those, you know, uh, things. But that would not have been the understanding of the readers of John's day. In Dr. Stephen Lawson's book titled Heaven Help Us, okay, he wrote this, and I think this is really helpful. To the ancient peoples, The sea was frightful and fearsome, an awesome monster, a watery grave. They had no compass to guide them in the open sea. On a cloudy day, their ships were absolutely lost without the stars or the sun to guide them. Their frail ships were at the mercy of the tempestuous ocean's fearsome, angry storms. The loss of human life in the sea was beyond calculation. So the sea represented a vast barrier for nations, continents, and people groups. And the sea today is still a barrier. For us to go and see family back in the States, we have to get on a plane and fly for 11 hours, right, to cross the Atlantic to get over there. Not to the East Coast. We go to the West Coast. But you have to fly. There's a big barrier, right? It separates 
uh, people. It separates groups. Now, you have to remember as well that the sea was good, that God created everything good, right? That he said it was very good. But the sea um, originally did not create barriers. It did not create divisions. That came after the flood. When the flood came, that reshaped our world today. And so there's divisions. There's, we've been separated from one another, but also because of sin, we've been separated from God, haven't we? And so it just sort of represents that. You also have to keep in mind that in Revelation 20, when all the, the, the dead unbelievers from history have been resurrected, we're told that they, they come from death and Hades and from the sea, because the sea has consumed so many dead over the years. So it was really looked at as an abode of the dead. So the concept of no more sea, would not, you know, that, would, that would have been a positive point for the readers of John's time is what I'm trying to tell you. Now, I know that three-quarters of our earth is, is water. Ninety percent of our body is made up of water. Every living thing on this earth is, is, you know, needs, needs water. But we will have glorified bodies in heaven, um, and those bodies won't require water for survival. We talked about that a bit when we looked at our resurrected bodies. So it won't be a necessity. And I think probably the biggest reason for the absence of sea is that there won't be any division. We will have perfect fellowship with one another, perfect access to one another, and to God. There won't be any, any division at all. Now, I don't think it means there's absence of water completely because you just go to chapter 22 and there's a river of life which is flowing somewhere. So there's probably bodies of water. There are great bodies of water that aren't the sea, right? You have the Sea of Galilee, but it's not the sea, right? So there are giant bodies of water. So I think we'll have all those things in heaven. There just won't be what the sea represents on earth today, which is death and division. You also have to think about what the sea brings us today. It brings us your lovely Welsh weather that we never have any idea what's going to do, right? right? Think about without the sea, what, what happens to your hydrological cycle, right? That's all completely different. So climate will be different in heaven because it won't have the sea, right? You have to put these things together a bit and think about that. So that means we can plan a barbecue anytime we want. That's all I'm looking forward to. (laughs) Listen, everything will be new, everything new, right? And there's no more sea, which when you look at our earth, right? You look at our earth from space, it's, it's mostly blue, right? It looks like mostly water, but it will look completely different. And from John's right? Perspective, his view, and oh, there's no more sea, right? It's, I can see mostly land. It's going to be completely different. So that's the thing. The first is his appearance. Right away, he sees there's no more sea. Second, it's capital. Verse two, then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, John really is zeroing in here from the broad glance, right, of the new heavens and the earth, right into the capital city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Now, this is the third Jerusalem in history, okay? The first one is the present Jerusalem in Israel today, right? The capital city of David, that's, that's the, the, the first Jerusalem. The second one will exist in the millennial kingdom. There will be a restored Jerusalem, a millennial temple. Christ will rule on this earth. But this one really is the third one the holy city that comes down out of heaven from God. So it's brand, brand new, right? And I think it's it's not heaven itself. It's just part of it, right? And you're going to see this as we continue to go on. 
Now, Hebrews, remember how we read Hebrews and heaven was kind of described as a heavenly country? Well, Hebrews also describes it as a heavenly city. In in chapter 12, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. In fact, Hebrews talks about the fact that we, are, we have no continuing city, but, but we're, we're seeking the one that will come. And even Abraham, Abraham was waiting for a city which had foundations whose maker and builder was God. He was even looking for that future Jerusalem that was built by God. And so many people believe that this is the place that Jesus promised to go and prepare for us. Remember when he said, I'm, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you? And when I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me, right? So many people think that's what he's been preparing. It's this new Jerusalem. It gets a little confusing when you start thinking about that in light of the millennial Jerusalem and how those things go together. I don't think we need to worry about that. We just know that this is a new Jerusalem described as this eternal state, and this will be part of the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. And in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, the place where God and his people dwell all right, 12 times, it's called the city. So I'm sorry for you people who don't like city dwelling, right? You're like, oh, I've lost you twice. There's no more sea and I'm living in the city. Like, I'm out of here. I don't want heaven. But again, what do you think of when you think of a city, right? Crime, pollution, congestion, right? Traffic, that's what you think of. We, we, can't, we can't bring those things into the city. We have to think about all the positive things of the city, right? What will be the perfect city? Activity, gatherings, community, right? Unity, harmony. Listen, it's hustle and bustle. There will be activity. Listen, this destroys all the kind of preconceived notions people have about heaven. Oh, it's going to be so boring. I'm just going to be floating around on the cloud. Where does that stuff come from? Like little naked cherubs strumming little, I don't, what, what? I would be bored too. I would say, you don't want that. It doesn't come from scripture. Folks, we're living in a city, and wait till we get to the description of this city. We're not getting into it today. We're just looking at it from afar. This is the city, and there's unity, events, socializing. Hopefully this year you realize, like, okay, that's a good thing. (laughs) Maybe some of you are like, oh, this is not bad. But as the months wore on, I think you realize, oh, no, we're built for that. You are built for that. You're built, you're relational beings. And in heaven, we will love the relationships that we have, and we will love to get together. That's where we're going to be living in, this wonderful, perfect city. It's described in verses 9 to 21, so you're going to wait a couple weeks till we get to that, okay? But look at how it's described. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I don't think we should confuse the city with the church, because you might remember, didn't you say that the church is the bride? Absolutely, because Paul does, Scripture does, right? Paul said that he was, he was betrothing us to a husband and he wanted to present us, the church, as a, a chaste virgin to, to the husband, right? And that we're making ourselves ready to meet our, our husband, right? Jesus, it's that picture. And then uh, we see in Mar- uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Revelation 19. And there it says the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. That certainly is uh, the church. But the use of marriage is a commonplace um, thing in Scripture, It's not only used for the church. In fact, the church is the bride of Christ. Israel is pictured as the bride of Yahweh, God, back in the Old Testament. And and God is often speaking through the prophets about uh, their relationship of unfaithfulness as if they were an unfaithful wife, right, or a harlot. And so I think that this city is called 
um, you know, the prepared as a, as a bride because it's made up of all the redeemed, of all ages. We're all coming together to live in this place, and it's prepared for us as a bride. It's not, it's not the bride. It's prepared that way. And that's what Jesus said he would do. He would prepare a place. He would put time and effort into preparing a place for us. So listen about that. Think they had thought and wisdom and great power that's going into designing this city, right? It's going to be amazing. We cannot compare any earthly... I don't care what the most beautiful, finest city on this planet you think you can compare it to, okay? It doesn't compare at all. He's making a beautiful place for us. It's the new Jerusalem. So we've seen its appearance... We also seen its capital, New Jerusalem, and we'll explore it more as we get into detail. But look at verse three. This is its character. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So forget the other stuff. This is the best verse right here. Let's just, can we just say that? This is the best part. Its character, its, its character is defined in two ways. The first is the presence of God. That's the essence of heaven. The essence of heaven is the presence of God. Now, you need to picture the entire universe as God's house. That's what you need to picture, right? And it encompasses all the new heavens. It encompasses all the new earth, the holy city of Jerusalem. And God is going to tabernacle with men. Did you notice that word? Tabernacle with them. Bible scholars will know what that word means, tabernacle, skene, tent, dwelling place, right? He's going to dwell with them. And you think about of human history, you know, God dwelt with man way back in the Garden of Eden. He walked among the garden, right? And, and Adam and Eve were there, but, but they sinned, and so sin separated us from the presence of God. And so since then, in, in God's redemptive plan here, and kind of showing us his heart, that he wants to dwell with them. What do you see later on? You see Moses given a vision to build a tabernacle, same word, right? Tent of meeting. And that was to facilitate that God could somehow dwell with man, yet not consume them. He's so holy and perfect and we're sinful that if he were just to come here, we'd all be gone. We'd be just incinerated. So he says, build me this place and I'll go in and I'll dwell there. And so when you read that, it is built God dwells in it. It's, it's his dwelling and presence is represented by the cloud that's in there. But Israel didn't dwell in the building. They dwelt around it, didn't they? They encamped around it, and he dwelt in it. And in Solomon's temple, it's built off the same kind of a design, right? So you have this outer court, but once you went into the inner side, you had the, the holy place, and it had the, the, the lampstand, right? And the, the showbread had all those things in there, but then it was separated with this veil, and that was the holy place, Right? the most holy place, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and nobody went in there in Solomon's day. No one went in there except the high priest, and that was only once a year. And even then, they tied a rope to his ankle because, I mean, if he fell down dead, they got to get him out, you know, somehow. So they would drag his body out. Um, so God was really just sort of facilitating a way where he could at least be around pe- his people but not consume them. So the question that we should get when we're reading through scripture is like, well, how, how is God going to dwell with man? Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. You read John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and what's the word? Dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. See, the word became flesh, that is Jesus, and Jesus dwelt among us as the God-man. He tabernacled with us. The word there is skenao. It's an off-the-root word, skene, 
right? The tabernacle. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus on earth is saying, I'm going to dwell with man. And when Jesus died for our sins on the cross, you remember Matthew records this, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Amazing. That symbolizes that the access to God that we have been desiring has been granted to all believers of Christ for all time. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20, it's recorded there for us. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We have access to that holy place because of Jesus. And so we have, as Christians, we, we have access to God the Father right now, right? I mean, his grace comes to us daily. His mercies are new, right? We have, we have access to his throne room of grace where we can pray and come in his presence, but we don't get to dwell with him. His spirit dwells in us, but we don't get to dwell with him. But here in the eternal state, that's where it will be truly finally realized for all of us. He will dwell with them, it says, and they shall be his people. Finally, God with us, his presence. Now notice the next statement. It's very important. God himself will be with them and be their God. Himself. God will not send a delegate this time. God will be there himself. I love Stephen Law said, again, his book, Heaven Help Us, he wrote this, God's glory will fill and permeate the entire new heaven, not just one centralized place. Thus, wherever we go in heaven, we will be in the immediate presence of the full glory of God. Wherever we go, we will enjoy the complete manifestation of God's presence. Throughout all of eternity, we will never be separated from direct, unhindered fellowship with God. Get your mind around that one. Incredible, right? But that's the essence of heaven. It's the presence of, of God. And, you know, sadly, books and movies that you read leave out the main character of heaven. Right? The five people you meet in heaven, they're missing the main character. God's not in that one. Right? I, there was a movie a number of years ago, Dreams, What Dreams May Come, or something like that, where, where a, a husband goes to heaven and he's miserable the whole time because his wife isn't there. Do you see what I'm saying? It takes away from what we would, should really be looking forward to in heaven. God is dwelling with us. And so thoughts like that, books like that, present heaven as an unhappy place or, or boring but listen, we have to look at what Scripture actually tells us. Another quote from uh, Randy Alcorn, he, he wrote a book, really big book, called Heaven. And again, he hasn't been there. <laughs> he just studies Scripture. Going to heaven without God would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her groom. A heaven without God would be like a palace without a king. If there's no king, there's no palace. So if there's no God, there's no heaven. Because God is beautiful beyond measure. If we knew nothing more than that heaven was God's dwelling place, it would be more than enough. Heaven's greatest miracle will be our access to God. I love that. So get your minds there. That's what chapter, uh, verse 3 says, right? Behold. He says that to get our attention. <laughs> the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is finally with men. When you're reading from Genesis to Revelation, that's what you're waiting for. You're waiting for that to happen. Like, oh, finally. Oh, it comes to pass. So it's the presence of God, but also a second characteristic of heaven. It's the absence of sorrow. Look at verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. These are just more dramatic distinctions between this world and heaven, aren't they? No sadness, no, no disappointment, no pain, no, no tears of regret. No, no tears of loss, no tears for any reason, really, right? There's no more death. 
You know what? Many people wonder something about heaven. They wonder whether or not our loved ones can see us from heaven. You ever heard that? Like, I wonder if they're looking down on me right now. And people say that at funerals. And, and if, if they're even aware of events that take place on earth. And they say, well, they couldn't be aware of what's going on earth because that would make them sad. But heaven's not a place of sadness, right? There's no more tears. There's no more. And they often cite this verse. Can I remind you all of what we just skipped in verse 1, right? We went to verse 1. What happened to the old earth? It's passed away. They're not looking down on anybody. Everyone's there. You see what I'm saying? They're looking at the wrong heaven. Now, to, to touch on that note, right? Believers in heaven today, I, I believe, I don't see any evidence to the contrary. In fact, I see more to the, the, the possibility, at least, that they uh, do, uh, are able, at least, to, to see what happens on earth. Jesus certainly does because he intercedes for us, right? He prays for us. He's our a high priest. The angels know what's happening on earth. Several scriptures speak to that. Paul even says that when he says, we've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Both heaven and, and earth know about what the apostles have gone through and the difficulties, right? But mostly I get it from Revelation. Because when you read Revelation, you get to chapter 6, you have all these um, um, uh, you know, beheaded saints, right? Martyred saints under the altar, and they're crying out to God, oh, God, when are you going to take vengeance on us, right? How long, O oh Lord, holy and true, until you judge, uh, avenge our blood on the earth? They, they apparently know what's happening on the earth, and they're calling for vengeance. And guess what? They get it in chapter 19, and then they sing a song of praise. Salvation, glory, honor, power belong to God, right? His judgments, because he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. They, they seem to know what's happening there. And also, Jesus says that there will be joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents, uh, in the presence of the angels of God. It's not the angels that are rejoicing. It's people in the presence of the angels rejoicing. Who might those people be? I think it's quite possible. And if you're in heaven today and looking down, whatever you see on earth is not enough to take away your joy in heaven because you're in the presence of Christ. But however, the biggest thing that should stick out to us is the new heaven and the new earth. A death will be no more, it says. Death will be no more. In Revelation chapter 20, right before this, in verse 14, it says that. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So death is defeated there. So there's no more death. And that was prophesied. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says this. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. See how that, that is associated with there's no more death, so there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, no more tears. And we looked at that when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, didn't we, right? Death swallowed up in victory, right? Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? So there's no more death. The former things have passed away, he says, which means our former way of life. Human experience is defined by these things, really, right? Pain, right? Death, sorrow are parts of how we define our, along with the good things. But, but our whole human experience will no longer be defined by those things. It will be only the positive things. Think through your life, and we always go, oh, we take the good, we take the bad. Listen, it will only be the good. It will only be always highlights. If you're making highlight video reels, <laughs> that's all you're going to have. So start, you know, the minute you get there, start taping. It's going to be amazing. Now, Something you should note here. All this time, all these things have been said by a loud voice from heaven. Did you notice that? I heard a loud voice from heaven in verse 3. Now, that's probably been the voice of an angel. 
Because most of the time we hear a loud voice from heaven, it's been a voice of an angel when you're going through the book of Revelation, okay? But look, it changes here. This message is confirmed by God himself in verse 5, okay? Then he who sat on the throne, okay, that's different, said, behold, I make all things new, (laughs) all right? It's confirmation. An angel was saying these things, but God has to speak up and say, I do make all things new. It's going to be brand new. No, there is going to be no more death. I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. I, I, so I think the, the one who sits on the throne is God. You go back to the throne room that we look at in Revelation 4, it's God. And here, I think this is what's happened. John, remember, John is giving this vision. He has to write these things down. He is so stunned by the news that there's no more death, no more sorrow in this place of eternity, right? No more, that he has stopped writing. (laughs) He's just like, all right? And God has has to step in and say, behold, I make all things new. Write, write it, John, write it. For these words are true and faithful. You can take it to the bank, in other words, right? This is not something that's been written in some fairy tale story book. God himself says it's true and it's faithful. You can count on it. There would be no more death. There would be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. It's been written for you and I so that we can have hope for that heaven and to enjoy the thought of that heaven, not to have a lackluster, oh, heaven kind of sounds boring attitude. Shame on us if we do, because God has specifically come out to say, no, write it down. I make everything new. It's going to be amazing. Look at um, verse uh, 6. He goes on, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So this is what God that's been speaking, hasn't it, right? God is the Alpha and the Omega. But then when you go to Revelation 1.8, you have a red-letter Bible. You know, they put the words of Jesus in the red letter. When I go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, um, that verse is in red. And that verse says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. When you go to Revelation 22, so the beginning of the book and the end of the book, chapter 22, verse 12, and behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Who, who's the one that's coming with the reward? That's, that's Jesus. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So Jesus is at the beginning of Revelation and at the end. Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. Yet God from the throne says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Do we see the Trinity here? God working together, right? This is, this is the alphabet, right? From the very beginning, from A to Z, right? I'm the beginning and the end. And then Jesus is there at the beginning, and he's there at the end. And so this is, is written here, I think, to encourage us to say, listen, okay, if you could look into the future, right? If you knew the beginning and you knew the end, okay, would you be able to go to someone and say, hey, listen, you have nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about, because I saw what happened, right? You probably couldn't do it because they go, you're a nutter. But can God do that? Yes, because he sees the beginning from the end. He, he sees it. It's, already, it's realized in God's mind, right? It's there. So he says, that's why he's saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Listen, I, it's going to happen because it's real. It has happened. So we need to take that to heart. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Okay, one more point here. Now we'll see its residence the residents of heaven, second half of verse six, and I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. 
All right, so we'll know when we get to Revelation 22 that there is a river of life, right? But Jesus, when, when he was on earth, talked about this kind of fountain of life thing. So, so this is the first residence of heaven. Who's going to end up in heaven? Maybe you're wondering, like, who? first of all, it's him who thirsts, right? To him who thirsts, right, I will give it the fountain of the water of life. Him who thirsts will be in heaven. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 14, wrote, or said this, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, he said that to a Samaritan woman coming to a well for water, right? And he was trying to make a distinction here. Listen, there's, this is water. It's fine. You can get the water and you can quench your thirst, but you'll be back tomorrow. But if you come and drink from me, you're not going to need water again, right? It's going to last for eternity, but you need to thirst for the fountain. Do you see that? You need to thirst for it. And this takes us back to the Beatitudes, right? And Jesus on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. That's the point here. The residents of heaven will be those who have thirsted for righteousness. And what that means is that you have to desire that you need righteousness first. That's what it starts with. Like, I am not righteous. I have no good works in myself. All my good works are filthy rags, Jeremiah says. I, I need righteousness, and so I thirst for it. Who can I come? Who can I go to uh, for, for that? We come to Jesus. In fact, Isaiah prophesied about it. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. I love that. You don't have money? Come and buy it. Well, how can I buy it without no money? No, you're going to buy it without price. <laughs> right. But you want it, come to it, and you'll get it, is what he's saying. Listen, no one's ever been denied Christ's righteousness who really thirsted for it. It's given to them. I thirst for it. That's the man of Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. Heaven will only be filled with people who have thirsted for righteousness and recognized, recognized that they couldn't get it on their own, that they had to go to the source, the fountain of life, Jesus Christ. That's who will be in heaven. Secondly, not just he who thirsts, but he who overcomes. Look at verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So not just he who thirsts, but he who overcomes. What is he who overcomes? Well, luckily, Scripture defines it for us. We don't have to make it up, okay? 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 to 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Pretty simple there, isn't it? Because you think about overcoming the world. Oh, gosh, it's only people who overcome the world. How do I do that? Oh, no, you don't do it. It's your faith in Christ because he does it. That's who overcomes the world. Amazing. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 2. You're going to want to go there. This is wonderful. Revelation chapter 2. And we'll just finish up briefly here. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are letters to the churches. I mentioned that to you, right? Seven letters, seven churches. And each letter ends with the same thing, but slightly different. I'm going to show you, okay? In chapter 2, you have a letter to the church of Ephesus, which is called the loveless church. They lost their love. But you go to verse 7, and this is how it ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... 
I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the, the, the paradise of God. So the overcomer, which is what? He who believes in the Son of God, from 1 John 5, right? Gets to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which we know in chapter 22, and we'll get to it. That's where it is. It's in heaven, okay? Look at the next church. In, in Starting in verse 8, it's the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. You go to the very last verse again in verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What was the second death? Death and Hades were tossed into the lake of fire. We'll see in a minute in verse 8, people tossed into the lake of fire. That's the second death. If you overcome, how do you overcome again? You believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe in Christ. You overcome, and you won't be hurt by that second death. Next church, church of Pergamos, starting in verse 12. You go down to verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Amazing, right? You're going to give manna. What did manna do in the wilderness? It sustained people, right? It fed them, right? It, it, it was life for them, and they'll be given a new name. Let me move quickly through. You next, next have the church of Thyatira that starts in verse 18. But the overcomer part comes in verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Right? Then you have the church of Sardis, starting in chapter 3. And in verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Then you have the church of Philadelphia, starting in verse 7. And you go to verse 12, and here it is again. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. What's the city of my God? The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And then you have the lukewarm church of Laodicea, and in verse 21, to him overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Incredible promises. Heaven is made up of the people who thirst for righteousness and the people who overcome. How do you overcome? You believe in Jesus Christ. And all those things are given to you. That, that's who goes to heaven. Listen, no one here is going to heaven because they're good people. None of us are going to heaven because I come to church every Sunday. I'm not going to heaven because I'm preaching from this pulpit or because I've been baptized. I'm going to heaven because I believe that Jesus died for my sins. That's it. Please don't complicate it. It's a simple gospel message. Love Christ because he loved you, and he died for your sins, and you will be in heaven. But I have to say it that way because the outcast part is a downer. You go to verse 8, and here's the outcast, people who will not be in heaven. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Listen, I know it's a long list of sins here, but these people are here because they're Christ rejectors. That's why they're here. The list of sins, it doesn't affirm uh, salvation by works, okay? Works are an evidence of our salvation or a lack of it, but they are never, never, never the basis or ground of it. Okay? They're never. They come out as a result of my love for Christ and the Holy Spirit working in me. But look at just a few of these. Cowardly, right? Why would the cowardly be, be there? Listen, this word is, is, is timid, it's fearful, is what the word means. 
dilos, and it's used only two other times in the New Testament, and Jesus uses it this way. Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? That's how he used it. Why are you fearful? How is it that you have no faith, he says, okay? It's the people who have no faith. They're timid. They're fearful to, to, to take, take the name of Jesus and say, yes, I want that. The unbelieving are listed here. Those are the faithless. And Jesus uses that word as, as well when he talks about the, the parable of the servant that is, is waiting for the master return, but he lives whatever way he wants. He beats his servants. He drinks like a drunkard. And he, he obviously has no evidence of, of a love for Christ in his life. And he says, that man will be cut in two and he will be with the unbelievers. That word unbelievers is the same word. That's how Jesus uses it. Abominable, detestable. Obviously, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, pharmakeos, where we get pharmacists from. These are, these are drug uh, pe- people, you know, kind of addicted to drugs. What do drugs do? I mean, that's an idol, right? I'm going to go to something else as a source of life. Idolaters, even liars, people who are deceitful. I know, you look at this. Listen, ultimately, you take all those things, they're evidence of people who have chosen something other than Christ. I have talked to people who are alcoholics. You can see it on their faces. And I've just honestly asked them, I say, you know, it looks like you serve another master and that he doesn't treat you very well. Right? I see it on your face. I see it in your body. Why are you serving that master? But that is the truth. We just choose to serve another master. And that's all that these people are. This is, this is not like a list of sins. They've done this. Oh, now you're out. Listen, you're not trying to work into a club. They're just people who have rejected Christ. But heaven, heaven is real and it's wonderful, but it won't be for all. It won't be for all. Many will not enter it. But for those who do, listen, it's going to be better by far. And I want to end with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says this, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. If you love God, listen, just have the confidence that I don't care what you've seen or heard, you ain't seen nothing yet. Heaven is better by far. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your wonderful word to us. We thank you for the glimpse, really just a glimpse of heaven that we've been able to have today. And we just, oh Lord, we just look forward to that day. And I know that we can't possibly, in our finite minds, (laughs) imagine it completely, Lord, but you do give us enough to give us a desire for heaven, a hope of living with eternity in view. Lord, your word tells us that since Christ is seated in the heavens, to, to then think, think of things above where you are. And so, Lord, I just pray that your people would do that. Lord, be with us as we continue this study. I'm so excited to just get our, our view up into the heavens, off of our circumstances here and where it belongs. Um, Lord, we will be with you for eternity. And we just want to, I just want to say, Lord, may your people truly desire that. Lord, give them that desire if they don't have it. Give them a desire for you in such a way that they would just, Lord, be, be vibrant people of joy in this world, that we live so abundantly and vivaciously in this life because we cannot wait to get to the next. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.